You can hear it in the empty theaters, in the empty stadiums. Hope is setting the stage for a comeback when life's victories will be sweeter. We'll celebrate how far we've come and learn that all we did, we did for each other. Spread hope, not COVID. Michigan.gov slash coronavirus. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at lesliemarshallshow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. I'm in Los Angeles, just flew in from Nashville, and are my arms tired? Hi, this is Leslie Marshall. Happy Tuesday, and welcome or welcome back. Only true democracy and talk. A lot of people concerned with the president's COVID-19 positive diagnosis and others, his behavior and his words. We're going to talk to an infectious disease specialist uh, a little bit later in the program to get answers from a medical scientific mind um, on COVID-19, on the president, his remarks, his behavior, and and quite frankly, how this virus uh, develops and, and some of the um, sneakiness uh, to this virus. We'll talk about that and more coming up. But right now, let's check a little thing called RIP. Mark Milley, who's chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and other senior military leaders, have entered quarantine. That's after Admiral Charles Ray, vice commandant of the Coast Guard, tested positive for the coronavirus today, according to The New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Now, Republican senators, top White House aides, and many of those closest to Trump in the administration have tested positive for the coronavirus following the president's diagnosis last Friday. A couple of things here. Remember, many of us think the diagnosis came for the president last Thursday. And as you just heard from Nicole Sandler, we don't know everyone who has the diagnosis uh, because the White House is not listing that based on privacy. But we are taxpayers and we're paying the salaries of these individuals. So I think we have a right to know this many in the administration or this many in this office, this many uh, in the uh, State Department, that kind of a thing. And you don't have to name names. And that wouldn't be a violation of HIPAA. Um, I'll reconfirm that with our doctor coming up, who's our guest, in a little bit. Uh, what the Defense Department spokesman Jonathan Huffman said in a statement per The New York Times is, quote, we are aware that Vice Commandant Ray has tested positive for COVID-19 and that he was at the Pentagon last week for meetings with other senior military leaders. Out of an abundance of caution, all potential close contacts from these meetings are self-quarantining and have been tested this morning. No Pentagon contacts have exhibited symptoms and we have no additional positive tests to report at this time. I just want to give a sidebar because I just flew for the first time since March. I'm going to be very, very open. Uh, some of you know uh, who follow me online on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, you know, uh, check out my website or listen to the show um, that I uh, did a debate uh, with Dr. Art Laffler uh, yesterday um, at uh, Middle East Tennessee University just outside of Nashville about the wealth tax. And I flew for the first time since March 
uh, Monday morning from Los Angeles to Dallas, then Dallas to Nashville on American Airlines. No middle seats, serving hot liquids, serving things wrapped up like you can have a sandwich or like, you know, fruit and cheese kind of thing. Um, Coming back on Delta this morning, however, from Nashville to Los Angeles, a very different story. Um, They, in first class, scattered the seats. In um, premium economy and coach, they did not have middle seats. They um, had you leave row by row from the front of the plane. And, um, I'll be, I'll be full disclosure. I was flying first class. I was a guest. I was not, you know, on my dime. Somebody else uh, did that as having me uh, be one of the debaters. And, um, one of the gentlemen who came on was seated next to somebody else. And she said, for the COVID-19 protocols for Delta, we need to have you move two rows back. Now, remember, these are all first class seats. Uh, they all recline the same way, except my seat, it was broken, but I had to deal with that because of the map that they had. Like I'm here, the person in front of me is there, behind me is there. So there's nobody directly in front of me, nobody next to me on the side, which I thought was very responsible of Delta. And they would only give you like bottled water. They didn't serve any liquids in a cup. You could actually get uh, a can of beer. You could get um, a a bottle of wine. Yes, they offered that at 7 a.m. And no, I did not partake. Um, But this is the reaction. Just Just as two men in first class, and first class has what? Five rows right? Two people each. So you're talking about, um, what, 20, 20 people, right? Um, and you know, on on that section, the man in the first row refused to move to the third row because he paid for his seat. And she explained to him the seat in the third row was the same amount of money. It caused a delay in us taking off. He acted like a petulant child. Sound familiar? So the other gentleman next to him moved Um, And then when we were leaving the plane, uh, a man across the row from me was standing and the flight attendant said, sit down. He was a very large man, very, very large man. I'm being nice. And uh, very heavy Tennessee accent, Southern accent. And he, he said, I say that because of what he is about to say. And he said, you can lick my a hole. Right. And the flight attendant looked at that and he just looked at me and he goes, right. And I said, that sounds actually disgusting, rude and offensive. (laughs) And so then he did sit his big A blank down and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm serious. And then he is yelling as he gets off the plane. I hate this state, California. And it's not California who made the rule. It's Delta Airlines. And they did it on the other end in Tennessee as well, because somebody I was talking to before we got on the plane was telling me that in response to this, you know, again, petulant children. This is not a big deal. Well, the big deal is the virus. I can't even explain to you how frustrated I am. Okay, seriously, my husband's a doctor. And those of you that act like petulant children, the doctors privately in the doctor's lounge want to perform medical experiments on you without anesthesia. Stop it. Wear the bloody mask. You wear a seatbelt. If you go into a bar for a beer at the beach, you got to put your shirt on. You got to put shoes on. This is not a big deal. The sooner we comply, the sooner we get it behind us. Look at other nations. Yes, some of them have had spikes. But when the nation works together because we're all in this together and acts like adults, the adults we should be, we can put it behind us. The reason we have more and more people dying is we have more and more people who are selfish and who are acting irresponsibly. And I'm sad to say it starts with the top and a leader who does not lead by example. Let's rip another. America is on the long road to economic recovery from and and, and I, I you know what let me do can I just go back 
And this brings out the worst in us, doesn't it? I'm not even going to say what I was thinking and wanted to say to that gentleman when he said, I hate this state. I mean, there are things that are like, then don't come. We don't want you here either. Well, of course you hate it because the people here are, you know what I'm saying? I mean, <laughs> don't get me started. He was just so rude to like everyone in his path and so angry. And I'm thinking you are flying in first class. You're a very large man. Obviously, you have enough money to feed yourself quite well and frequently. Why? Oh, why are, are you complaining so much? You're alive. And you know what? If that guy got COVID, he would be in the ICU or on a respirator because he was extremely obese. And anybody out there who's extremely obese, you know, because my husband tells me all the time, the patients he has that are extremely obese have more complications and difficulties as a result of surgery simply because there are other underlying conditions within their anatomy. And that, that's just how it is. Very, very skinny people, the same thing. If you are not at a healthy weight, you're going to perhaps have health issues. And COVID is definitely an issue if that gets into your system. Let's rip another now. America is on the long road to economic recovery from the pandemic recession, but dark clouds remain on the horizon. The recovery is far from complete, and the U.S. economy remains of danger of shifting into reverse once again. One major risk factor, a rise in COVID-19 infections. Hello. So it's not all about you. It's all about not just COVID and infecting people and wearing a mask. It's also about money. If you care about money, put your mask on. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said today that the, at the National Association for Business Economics in their annual meeting that a second wave of coronavirus could, quote, more significantly limit economic activity, not to mention the tragic effects on lives and well-being. And managing this risk as the expansion continues will require following medical experts' guidance, including using masks and social distancing measures. My husband's an orthopedic surgeon, but he and other doctors are very concerned that this winter will be hell and that we may go back to where we were in March or April. Not being able to have doctors uh, operate on you uh, if it's an elective surgery. And the reason being there are people that are refusing to get flu shots for refusing to wear masks and social distancing. Coronavirus, COVID-19, and the flu are both viruses. They're, they're, they're flus, they're, they're airborne. And, and because of that, um, there are going to be people flooding the emergency room thinking they have COVID that have the flu. There could be people that have both. They don't really know how having COVID and the flu work together in conjunction because we didn't have a full flu season to work with last year. And in winter, what happens in most of the country, you can't have outdoor dining. So the restaurants either close, which hurts business owners and the economy, or People what? Go inside after refusing to be grownups and wear the mask and social distancing. Let's just say the doctors are very concerned that a train wreck is coming, a big one. Now, a second wave of coronavirus could uh, more significantly limit economic activity, not to mention the tragic effect that it can have on lives and well-being. That's what Powell said. Managing this risk as the expansion continues will require a following medical experts' guidance, including using masks and social distancing measures. My bad, I did just say that, uh, that quote. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at lesliemarshallshow.com.
And we're back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. We continue with our extended version of RIT from the headlines on this Tuesday. President Donald Trump is once again warning voters that Democrats would, quote, shut our economy and jobs down, quote, if they win in November. But Goldman Sachs is telling its clients the exact opposite. Just hours after Trump's all caps tweet yesterday morning predicting economic disaster, Goldman economists pointed out that polls suggest a blue wave in which Democrats gain unified control of Washington is becoming more likely, and they're not suggesting investors dump stocks. In fact, quote, all else equal, such a blue wave would likely prompt us to upgrade our forecasts. That's what Goldman Sachs chief economist Jan Hatzius wrote in a report yesterday. Now, it's true that if Democrats sweep into power early next year, it would likely translate to higher taxes and more regulation. Such a reversal from the Trump agenda could eat into corporate profits and the earnings, but for the most affluent. Joe Biden is also promising a bonanza of government spending that coupled with extremely low interest rates would likely speed up the economy. Goldman Sachs wrote that a blue wave would sharply raise the probability of a fiscal stimulus package of at least $2 trillion shortly after the 20th of January inauguration. The bank also cited Joe Biden's longer-term spending plans on infrastructure, climate, health care, and education. Taken together, this spending would at least match the likely longer-term tax increases on corporations and upper-income earnings. That's what Goldman Sachs says. That's not me and that's not Democrats. Uh, They also went on to say it would likely result in substantially easier U.S. fiscal policy, a reduced risk of renewed trade escalation and a firmer global growth outlook. Moody's 7.4 million more jobs under Biden's plan. Well, that's their analytics. That's what they found, that Biden's economic proposals, if enacted, would create 7.4 million more jobs. So Goldman Sachs isn't the only Wall Street firm to point out the positive benefits of a blue wave and Biden as president. 7.4 million more jobs than Trump, if elected. The economy would return to full employment in the second half of 2022. That's two years earlier than under the Trump plan. And that, again, is according to Moody Analytics. Uh, Mark Zandi, who advised Senator John McCain in his presidential race and who is uh, Moody's uh, top economist, said, quote, the economic outlook is strongest under the scenario in which Biden and the Democrats sweep Congress and fully adopt their economic agenda. Okay, so let's do it. You're just going to get out there and vote and vote blue to make that happen, America. Let's rip another. I want you to take a listen. This is a portion of the former First Lady Michelle Obama's 24-minute closing argument video regarding this upcoming presidential election just weeks away in November. Here is former First Lady Michelle Obama. Believe it or not, the election is right around the corner. Votes are already being cast. And if you're still deciding who to vote for or whether to vote at all, I wanted to take a moment to remind you what's at stake and to urge you to make a plan to vote today. Because let's be honest, right now our country is in chaos because of a president who isn't up to the job. And if we wanna regain any kind of stability, we've got to ensure that every eligible voter is informed and engaged in this election because the stakes are on display every day, not just in the headlines, but in our families. If you're a parent like me, you're feeling the consequences of this president's failure to take this pandemic seriously from his constant downplaying of the importance of masks and social distancing to his relentless pressure on schools to open without offering a clear plan or meaningful support to keep students and teachers safe. 
Look, our daughters are in college now, and luckily they're taking classes from home this semester. But in just a few weeks since schools have resumed, many of their friends who returned to campus have either tested positive or are living with someone who has. Yes, it's anecdotal, of course, and everybody wants their kids back in school as soon as it's safe. But as a mom, it is frightening thinking about all these young people who were just our babies yesterday, quarantined alone in dorms or apartments with little or no support as the disease continues to spread, unable to come home if their symptoms get worse. Just imagine the toll that worry is taking on families across this country. Yes, thankfully there's some relief in knowing that most cases in young people are mild. And I pray every day that no one faces longer term consequences to this disease. But the truth is, we just don't know yet. And we simply cannot trust this president to tell us the truth about anything. Meanwhile, parents with younger kids are dealing with another set of stresses from grade schoolers who want to learn but struggle to connect with their teacher through a screen to schools that open and close with little advance notice, leaving everyone in an endless cycle of uncertainty. Too many parents are still juggling two jobs and multiple kids without any support, not to mention the millions of families anxious about making rent or getting internet access or affording childcare. It's painful to think that months into this crisis, this is still where we are with no clear plan, no peace of mind. And the worst part is it didn't have to be like this. Look around the world. So many other countries aren't experiencing this level of extended suffering and uncertainty. These countries were hit by the same virus as we were. They had the same kind of resources to contain it as we did. But what they didn't have to contend with was this president, a man who had every resource at his disposal. The finest medical experts our best intelligence, and yet ignored all the advice and failed to produce a plan to provide enough tests for worried families or protective equipment for our healthcare workers. Well, we have breaking news. That's uh, Michelle Obama, and that's what's ripped uh, there. Uh, Mark, instead of reading our other items, I think I'm uh, uh, going to um, share this breaking news. Um, uh, President Trump has put an end to months of negotiations over a COVID-19 stimulus package today. What? President Trump has rejected the Democrats' latest offer, saying he wanted to postpone negotiations until after the November election. <laughs> Unlike sitting a new Supreme Court justice. In an afternoon tweet, Trump said Democrats were, quote, not negotiating in good faith and was rejecting their offer. He told Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican to Kentucky, to focus full time on confirming the Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett instead. He said, quote, I've instructed my representatives to stop negotiating until after the election, when immediately after I win, we will pass a major stimulus bill that focuses on hardworking Americans and small business. Excuse me, Mr. President, by not letting the stimulus package pass, you're hurting your House and Senate Republican races and your own. Maybe the Supreme Court will get some people out to vote who are hoping that Amy Coney Barrett will be confirmed and overturn Roe v. Wade. However, she's not the only justice on the court and overturning a constitutional amendment is not as easy as placing someone new in a seat 
when you're on and in a gang of nine. I'm Leslie Marshall. That's what's ripped from the headlines. Coming up, very special uh, guest, uh, a physician, is going to be talking with us regarding COVID-19 and the president's positive diagnosis and the president's uh, behavior and words uh, since he has been diagnosed last week. We'll be back right after this. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. We are back, and so is our guest, who was last on our show this past summer. He gave a great interview. We're glad to have him back, and we invited him back, and especially in light of breaking news last week at the end of the week when we heard that the president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, his wife, First Lady Melania Trump, both tested positive for COVID-19 and uh, numerous other individuals so far within the administration and uh, that had come into contact uh, with uh, the president. Today, we have Dr. Bob Bollinger. He is the Raj and Kamla Gupta Professor of Infectious Diseases at the John Hopkins University School of Medicine, and he holds joint appointments in international health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and in community public health at the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing. He is founding director of the Center for Clinical Global Health Education, the CCGHE. The center is doing a lot of COVID-19 related work here in the United States and beyond our borders. And uh, more than a pleasure to have him with us. Let me get this out in case I forget later, and I hope I don't. The website is main.ccghe.net. On Facebook, it is facebook.com forward slash CCGHE. Dr. Bollinger, thank you for joining us and back on the program again today. I know you're quite busy, and I thank you very much for taking the time, sir. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Leslie. Nice to be here. And nice to have you with us. Um, there are a lot of people that are having mixed reactions um, to the president's uh, diagnosis and also to the president's reaction to this diagnosis and the speed at which some things are occurring. Um, so first, out of the box, um, obviously, he's the president of the United States. Um, is the president receiving some treatment that, you know, maybe people that just walk into an ER throughout the country wouldn't uh, necessarily get because they're not the president of the United States, something that might be an experimental form, uh, for example? That's my first question. Well, I don't know. I've not been involved in the care of the president, so I don't know specifically what kind of treatment he's had. All I know is what's been reported. Um, and so based on what I've heard from the public reports, uh, he's had uh, three specific treatments um, for this virus. One of them is a, a, an antibody medication made by the company Regeneron, which is um, still an experimental medicine that's uh, under investigation. The other two medicines are um, remdesivir, which is a drug to treat the virus, and then dexamethasone, which is a steroid medicine to try to suppress immune, Im immune responses. Um, so the remdesivir and the, and the dexamethasone are, are rapidly become essentially standard of care for for severely ill patients with COVID, for hospitalized patients with COVID. Um, the, uh, the Regeneron product is still an experimental treatment. It's uh, my understanding that uh, he had access to that through something called compassionate use application, uh, where the company can offer the medicine um, you know, in certain situations if requested. So obviously, as the President of the United States, he, um, he, would, he certainly go, gets access to things that a lot of us wouldn't otherwise get access to and much more quickly. 
Um, the president was released fairly quickly, uh, just a few days after being at Walter Reed. Uh, my understanding, uh, just from news reports and, and research, and my husband, I think I shared with you, is an orthopedic surgeon and things that other doctors are, are saying to him uh, in the doctor's lounge and such, is that um, COVID-19 is kind of tricky um, in the sense, in, in many ways, uh, but one of the ways uh, that somebody will get it, their symptoms are fairly mild, uh, but then seven to 10 days into it, um, it, it can have a, a, a complete, you know, turnabout and become uh, more severe. Um, is that uh, your finding uh, with COVID-19? And, and, and I know you're not diagnosing him, but I mean, if a hospital sends somebody home, does that necessarily mean that individual's out of the woods? Well, as you, know, as you mentioned, uh, there are concerns for some patients who initially get well, and then, as you said, seven or 10 days later, uh, can turn um, in the wrong direction again. And oftentimes, that's associated with uh, the hyperinflammation process we talk about, where the immune system gets uh, you know, extra um, activated, um, and that can cause you know, problems, particularly with, um, with lungs, with uh, blood clots, and things like that. And if a patient's going to have that kind of reaction, we typically see it between seven and 10 days after symptom onset. When the president most recently spoke, he went up some stairs, had a mask on, and um, he seemed to have some shortness of breath. And I heard on another interview, I think it was on NPR, um, that a physician from here in Southern California said that they saw something in the neck indicating that they were trying to, he was possibly trying to take uh, deep breaths. Did you happen to see that and just uh, visually are are you know are are you seeing some things perhaps different than what you're hearing the president say about his uh, being symptom uh, not being symptomatic at this point? No, I haven't seen that um, you know that that picture, so I, I really wouldn't be able to make a diagnosis over the video. Um, what what is in, important to keep in mind is that uh, one wouldn't give dexamethasone to a COVID patients and, and unless they had some evidence of low oxygen in the blood at some point. I mean, uh, the, the data suggests it benefits patients who, are, who, have, who need oxygen. Um, in fact, there's some indication that if you give dexamethasone to, to COVID patients that don't need oxygen, that have a more mild case, there might even be increased risk of complications. So you wanna be really specific and you only give that drug uh, to a patient that has low oxygen levels at some point. So presumably at some point during the care of the president, uh, his oxygen levels must have been sufficiently low to indicate the need for dexamethasone. But it, currently, I'm not sure what the, you know, what his, his status is clinically. With, with dexamethasone, which, which I was on with infertility and sadly got that moon face syndrome, which is one of the side effects, uh, um, I believe, of dexamethasone. But with the steroids, um, is it, don't steroids sometimes give you a false sense of, of well-being, doctor, or is that only after being on them for a prolonged period of time? Well, there, there are different kinds of uh, side effects and, and consequences of taking steroids. Some are short-term, some are long-term. In the short-term, uh, you can, for example, suppress fever. So just like a Tylenol or another anti-inflammatory drug, some people, um, can, their fevers can respond to steroids. So you can mask a fever, for example. Um, you can often get uh, the, the, the side effect you described for yourself is something we, that you would more likely see in someone who's been on the medicine for a longer period of time. Uh, for a few days of treatment, uh, oftentimes you can get disruptions in sleep. Um, you can have um, you know, a number of, um, of you know, short-term side effects, but you can certainly suppress a fever with steroids. 
Uh, yeah, I, I, I just uh, know that some people have uh, that false sense of, you know, I feel all better <laughs> after being. Well, uh, yeah, you can certainly right. get a little boost um, from the steroids. Our body produces steroids naturally to help us right. uh, feel better. And so that's uh, that's giving us some some extra steroids uh, can can give you a sense of well-being to some patients. You know, my husband's a medical professional, as I mentioned, uh, as you are. And uh, the president today um, said that Americans were learning to live with COVID-19. This is a day after returning uh, from uh, the Walter Reed Hospital to the White House. Um, he will receive intensive treatment uh, for coronavirus, as we spoke of. Obviously, the president of things available to him that not every individual does. Uh, he was there for three days um, and due to receive a fifth transfusion of the antiviral drug remdesivir uh, while being treated with that steroid dexamethasone, as we discussed. Um, he has repeatedly played down the disease. And one of the things that the president said that uh, was off-putting to me and, and many others um, was that uh, we don't be afraid. Um, do, you, do you feel that some of the rhetoric, whether it's from the president you know, or, or other politicians, regardless of, of their party, um, is it making your job and others as physicians harder because sometimes they're downplaying this. I was mentioning before you came on, I just flew for the first time since March uh, to, from LA to Nashville and this morning flew back from uh, Nashville to LA and grown men refusing to wear masks or refusing to skip a seat, refusing to wait till the airline calls you row by row. I, I'm, I'm sorry, as a woman and, and a mother, I'm watching a bunch of grown individuals and men, especially acting like petulant children. Does this make uh, it harder to put COVID-19 in our rearview mirror, and does it make it more difficult for you and other physicians in the medical community uh, to treat it if people are downplaying it or not taking it as seriously as it is? Well, for us in the medical profession, the biggest uh, issue is that is uh, increase in cases means increase in hospitalization, increase in deaths, and and we saw what happened when we had a surge in New York and other parts of the country where hospitals got overwhelmed, and that's a huge ish issue for us as clinicians is uh, just uh, being able to deal with increasing cases when you have increasing transmission. So anything that that was going to increase transmission is, is going to put a stress on the healthcare system. But I think it also puts a stress on our society, right? I mean, uh, we all want this epidemic to, to turn um, so that we can get back to work, get back to school, get back to our lives. The sooner we do that, the sooner we turn this epidemic around, the sooner we'll get back to that point. So anything that disrupts that improvement, anything that increases transmission rather than decreases transmission is taking us in the wrong direction. I mean, um, we should be very concerned about the fact that we still have 40,000 plus uh, new cases every day. We have 700 Americans dying every day still today um, from this infection. So this is, this is serious. And it seems to me that we want to do everything we can to slow it down so we can get back to... Um, to where we, we want to be, you know, to put this into perspective, um, you know, the, the Vietnam well, doctor, War. Doctor, can you, doctor, we yeah. take a break. Can you hold that thought? Sure. I don't want to, I want to hear you. I want you to put it in perspective sure. and I want to speak to um, some of the social distancing that we're not seeing, um, you know, in our nation. And we will uh, be back right after this. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. We are back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome, welcome back. 
Our guest is Dr. Bob Bollinger, the Raj and Kamala Gupta Professor of Infectious Diseases at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, holding appointments in international health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and Community Public Health at the JH School of Nursing. Their website is main.ccghe.net on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash ccghe. Uh, doctor, thank you for holding. Welcome back. Uh, please continue where we left off. I apologize. I didn't want to um, cut you off there. Uh, and, um, you know, please continue. But we were up against a, a hard break. Uh, thank you, Leslie. No, we were just talking about um, the suggestion that we shouldn't worry about this epidemic, that we should uh, drop our guard and not be concerned about it. And, you know, I was just, uh, uh, you know, trying to put it in perspective with 200 and more than 210,000 Americans dying in the last six months from this infection. You know, that's five, that, that's five years worth of influenza deaths in the United States in six months. You know, that's, that's five times as many people uh, who died of auto accidents in the United States from last year. You know, so we have to put, this is a, and these are 210,000 Americans whose families have suffered. And for every, every person who's died, think about how many additional people have been in the hospital or suffering long-term consequences, the so-called long haulers that are still we're starting to learn about. I mean, this is, a, this is an unprecedented public health problem. And to suggest we shouldn't worry about it, I think is unconscionable. We have to worry about it um, a lot, and we have to do what's necessary to turn this epidemic around so we can get back to school, get back to life. Yeah. After the president and the first lady were diagnosed, and they started diagnosing more people like Senators Tom Tillis and Mike Lee, um, and then they showed a picture, a shot on TV in um, the Rose Garden uh, at the White House, and there had been a reception and you see Chris Christie, who's now positive, hugging people, uh, Mike Lee, uh, one of the clergy that became positive, you know, one of the reverends that became positive. And since then, another clergy member has become positive. How, how do you feel as a physician when you see this behavior from uh, from top officials who the nation is looking to for for guidance? I mean, this this I would imagine that it's almost like a slap in the face. Doesn't this make your job harder? And to your point, uh, when you talk about the flu, Facebook actually removed the post from President Trump because he falsely claimed that COVID-19 is, quote, less deadly in most populations than the flu. Uh, Twitter labeled the tweet also for violating its rules about spreading misleading and potentially harmful information. They left it up because they thought it was still in the uh, interest of the public. Um, your thoughts, your response. No, I just uh, I, I just think that all of us should be doing whatever we can to slow the epidemic down, not increase transmissions. If we're not setting a good example for the public um, and and demonstrating the behaviors are necessary to slow it down, we're we're just accelerating the problem. We're we're slow we're slowing down our chance of recovery. It just it doesn't make sense on so many levels, including the public health level. Um, they had a hyper spreading event in the in the in the White House and. The people that got infected in that hyperspreader event now, of course, are taking the infection home to their own families, and then that's going to, you know, seed uh, infections elsewhere. So um, it's uh, it's really a, it's really challenging, not just for uh, for, for physicians and, and healthcare workers, but more importantly for society. We've got to do the exact opposite. We've got to slow down this this transmission, not not do things that are going to increase the transmission. Just just to extend our our are suffering as a society uh, from this epidemic. 
The United States has the world's highest death toll from this pandemic. We have more than 209,000 deaths. What what are we doing or not doing that other countries have done that are faring better than we have? If you look at South Korea as one example or New Zealand, some people would say our size is very different, but China's much larger than we are. Um, and uh, they seem to uh, definitely be moving or have moved uh, beyond this in certain areas, including the epicenter of it, Wuhan. Well, I mean, you know, the European Union is larger than we are and yes. has much lower uh, rates than we do, although it's starting to uptick in certain countries. Uh, you know, it's 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 not rocket science. It's about um, our society's willingness to care about others enough to put on a mask when you're traveling, and not to you know not to debate whether or not you should, you know, sit sit apart from each other on an airplane to protect each other, for example, and and not take your mask off in front of other people when you're COVID infection infected. I mean, these are just simple common sense things that um, that we as a society just haven't done enough of. We're not doing enough masking, distancing, and, um, and uh, you know, staying out of crowded indoor you know, situations like the, the Rose Garden event that we, we talked about. And, and as long as that continue, that behavior continues, we're gonna have increasing transmission. Other countries have, and their societies have handled it differently. They've taken it more seriously. They've listened to the scientists. And it hasn't been easy. They've suffered economically as well. Right. So they have a much better control of the epidemic. Let's talk about vaccines because a lot of people feel that that will be our salvation. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. Hoping it will. But the White House has blocked new Food and Drug Administration FDA guidelines on bringing potential vaccines for COVID-19 to market uh, that some people are saying would almost certainly have prevented their introduction uh, before the November 3rd election. Um, at issue was the FDA's planned instruction that vaccine developers follow patients enrolled in the trials for at least two months to rule out safety issues before seeking emergency approval from the agency. And according to a senior administration official, they confirmed that the move yesterday, last night, technically, uh, they said the White House believes, quote, that uh, no medical, clinical or medical reason, there was no med medical or clinical reason for the additional requirement. Um, what are your thoughts on this um, and, and, and comments regarding this additional requirement? Well, I, I think that the, the planned two-month uh, you know, window for assessing safety is really important. Um, I think, uh, frankly, it's going to be important to the companies that make the vaccines, right? The, the last thing a company wants is to, is to have a vaccine that people don't trust as far as its safety is concerned or its efficacy. Um, so I think that there's a lot of incentives for the companies to get this right, to manufacture these vaccines. I mean, uh, we want people to have confidence that the vaccine's safe, otherwise they won't, they won't take it. We have enough right. uh, concern about vaccines already in the society. And if people aren't willing to take the vaccine, it's not going to slow the epidemic down. So why would you raise questions about the safety of a vaccine at a time when you're trying to slow the epidemic down? Uh, secondly, um, you know, this, as we've talked about already, this virus is a, is a tricky virus. It, it, has, it does funny things to the immune system. And that immune system activation can cause problems and serious consequences. So what do we do with a vaccine? We trick the body's immune system into reacting to what, we, what it thinks is the virus. So it's really important in that situation to make sure we get the safety right, that we're not creating unnecessary or un, uh, un, uh, unexpected problems. So we do have to do a careful safety assessment for, uh, uh, to make sure that people have confidence when they, when they get the vaccine. It's, it's not only gonna work, but it's safe. Otherwise, we're de defeating the purpose of the whole vaccine development.
initially. Yeah, because I, I mean, medical professionals, scientists should decide if the shots are safe and effective uh, for vaccination of a mass uh, population in size like we have, uh, not politicians. Speaking of that, because you see COVID patients and because we're talking about this vaccine, are politicians in medicine's way? And I'm not picking on any one politician, but are politicians or the rhetoric from politicians getting in the way? Do you have patients coming in and saying, oh, I don't want that or give me, inject me with some bleach, doc? Nobody's, nobody fortunately has come in and asked me those two questions. Um, but I think, you know, uh, there's been politicization of, of these issues for, for some time, um, which I think is unfortunate. Uh, people have lost confidence in science. People have lost confidence in in facts, for, exa- for example. Um, and and if that can, you know, with that really creates challenges when you're trying to implement just standard public health prop uh, processes. Um, and I think if we don't, and we have to take responsibility for making sure we communicate clearly as public health people uh, in ways that, that people can really understand, and not try to politicize this. We have to be factual and and clear when the way we communicate. Um, it, it, whoever is politicizing this is making it difficult to, to control this epidemic. Lastly, at Walter Reed Hospital, the doctor that was treating the president has been attacked by some people saying that he's not being honest or he's not completely laying out the situation. Is he in a difficult position because one, he is treating the president because of HIPAA, but also he is a member of the Navy and that is his commander in chief. Yeah, I don't. I don't have any comment on next. I really don't understand. You know, I'm not involved in the care. Um, I think all of us as physicians want to be careful due to HIPAA and confidentiality. Obviously, it's a different situation when it's the president. Um, but uh, in general, um, I'm sympathetic to uh, trying to to protect the confidentiality of patients uh, that yeah. I care for. Yeah, Doctor, lovely to see you. I'm glad you're well. Stay well and stay safe. And thank you for taking the time to join us today. Um, You're awesome, and we love uh, having your knowledge here on the program, and I'm sure we'll have you back soon. Uh, Continue to be safe, uh, especially with winter coming. I know my husband and other physicians like yourself are probably a bit concerned with flu season amping up what will take place. Dr. Bob Bollinger's been our guest, Rajan Kamla Gupta, Professor of Infectious Diseases at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, holding appointments, joint appointments in international health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and in community public health at the GH School of Nursing. Uh, By the way, founding director of the Clinical Center for a Clinical Global Health, go to their website, main.cc8ghe.net. That's main.ccghe.net. And on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash ccghe. Thank you, doctor. Thank you, Liz. Toxic chemicals have contaminated the Huron River, but Representative Ryan Berman voted to cut millions from the state's cleanup fund. Berman's record is toxic. Paid for with regulated funds by Michigan Leadership Committee PAC, not authorized by any candidate. This is what the Huron River sounds like. What you can't hear are toxic chemicals like PFAS that have contaminated the water. Toxic PFAS are linked to cancer and brain damage in children. But State Representative Ryan Berman cut more than $21 million from the state's contaminated site cleanup fund. Ryan Berman's record is toxic. Paid for with regulated funds by Michigan Leadership Committee PAC. Not authorized by any candidate.